Yes, so the readings from Philippians um, chapter 2, verse 1, and if you do have a red Bible, it's page 1824. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Holly. It's good to be back um, with you guys uh, after being away a fair bit. Leanne is, sends her love. She is um, involved in our home church, so she can't be with us this morning, but she would love to have come if I can wrangle this microphone. Uh, of course, if you listen to the children's talk, you already have the core, you know, you won't need to bother with the sermon. So uh, that's the problem with good children's talks. They take the centre of what you're trying to say and then just you know, go, oh, well, I'm, I guess I've still got to do the preaching. So... Um, but thanks for Kate's um, uh, introduction to what we're going to talk about today. It's about unlimited power, but of course you already pick up it'll be about how Jesus deals with unlimited power and what that means for him. Let me pray. We do thank you, gracious God, that you gave us the scriptures to help us learn and discover your truths for us and to work in our lives by uh, the amazing work of your Holy Spirit. We do ask, Lord, that at the end of our time today, as we've spent time together, you will have changed us and helped us to see something more of who you are, so both we can be loved by you, understand your purposes for us, and do your work in the world until we see you face to face. In your name, amen. So um, unlimited power and uh, the humility of Jesus. Here we go. Oh, oh. Different things are always, some are hard-pressed, some are soft-pressed. Anyway, <laughs> it's the challenge of a new system. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I wonder how you have experienced the exercise of power in your own life. Um, human, human beings don't give up power very easily because power gives you prestige. Power gives you preference. You get the best seats at the table, attention from others, devotion, 
even adulation, depending on which power relationship you have. If you are powerful, you have control over or can influence the lives of others. And it can be very heady stuff. Power can be very addictive and it feeds into our desires to be number one. Have you ever been under a boss like that at work? Someone who at certain points you can you know likes being in charge, likes telling you what to do, likes making sure that they actually are the one that shines and maybe you don't, despite your hard work and efforts to work hard. And if you're honest, if you've ever, ever been in a position of authority, I reckon at some point you recognise and realise that you do actually have the ability to direct, we'd say lead, and at some points you feel like, I quite like this. Being a pastor, I have to be very careful about how I exercise my authority or my power, both spiritually, giving advice, direction, sometimes discipline, whether it's a staff member or a member of the churches I'm involved in, that can be a bit dangerous if you're not careful how you exercise it. Or I might say, even in preaching, the fact that you guys are listening to me. Well, some of you are at least. I can't tell, that's one of the things. But it can feed your ego, can't it, when you feel like, hey, I'm important, I'm significant. And in some part, of course, it's not wrong to both exercise appropriate leadership, use your authority in a right and correct way, um, feel good about the job or the work or the role you have in life, that's great, but be careful, and we need to be careful, about how we exercise the authority that we have been given in whatever sphere of life, whether it's family, relationships. Because not every relationship, power relationship, is to do about being a boss or a subordinate or a line manager or whatever. There are other parts of our relationships where we can exercise power over our children, over our spouses, over our friends, over our um, relationships. Um, I noticed a while ago, I didn't get a clip of this, but that's um, Vladimir Putin. And you see the, it's a bit hard to see on this screen maybe, you see the angle of the heads of the guards? As he walks through, they do this. And follow him. Now, the Russians aren't the only ones that do that, but when you see a long line of soldiers or guards lining up and they all turn as their leader comes through and follow him carefully through with their heads rigidly fixed on them. What's that about? It's all about significance. They're the leader. As I say, it's not just the Russians that do that. When you see the um, long cavalcade of cars and outriders with the President of the United States or other leaders, when you see the military lined up when... Anthony Albanese visits a country and it's the presenting of the guard stuff. It's all about, what's it about? Either we're a strong nation, we're showing you our best, or you deserve this respect because you are the leader of a nation. Again, can be heady stuff if you're not careful. I don't know if you can recognise... <coughs> Oops. Didn't need that watch anyway. Recognise any of these. See how subservient some people are? 
pick up my watch, please. You just want to get... You know, okay. first, first one, anybody know who that is? Renato, yeah, he's, he's the, apparently from the, you know, the one website I looked at, right? He's um, got 787 million followers. He's the number one uh, influencer in the world. Second person, anybody? Selena Gomez, well done, Holly. Um, she's only got 499 million followers. Third one, Kim Kardashian, yeah, who has various guises as far as I can tell. 450 million people. Now, this is a modern phenomenon in one way. Certainly the level of reach is there, but think about, I'm not sure, CPX, I'm not sure if you have 787 million followers or maybe, Tash, in the future, your podcast will get (laughs) the Kim Kardashian kind of number of 450 million. Um, But these guys, it's all about, what, influence. But actually, it's all about them, isn't it, really? It's the fundamental assumption is I can influence you in some way so you join, you know, you, you sign up to my, you know, whatever it is, and what I say and what I do has influence over you, therefore I can get more products that I can sell, which means I get more money, more followers, and it kind of grows. Um, now, I'm not saying there are some influencers who probably do a really good job, but I don't know, there's something about it, it's all about me, that just is, uh, it's not just them, of course, it's in lots of areas of life, whether politicians or leaders of various uh, organisations. But... Um, Certainly influences exercise power over those who follow them. That's the way the model, the marketing model, works. Dare I say it, um, Jesus is the um, opposite of that. The beginning of Philippians says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, it's writing to the church, a place called Philippi, if any tenderness and compassion, that is, if you have these benefits from being a follower of Jesus, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. The very foundation of the Christian faith, the basis of who Jesus is and following him, comes from the fact that Jesus first loved us before we even knew of him, before we even cared about him, He loved us. This should be transformational for us about the way we think about every relationship. Our sense of identity, our view of ourselves, of each other, of our world, of our future, all has been transformed by the relationship that Jesus makes possible, the Jesus who is the Lord of all. What the scripture is saying here has a lot about... um, flows from our risen Lord Jesus, the one who has been resurrected and ascended into heaven, talks about how we are to think, feel and relate to others. It's the language of love, of emotion, not of KPIs or performance, because our relationship with God in the end isn't about what we do, but about who we know. Those first couple of verses talk about encouragement, tender, love, affection, also about service of each other, Um, about a relationship with God that brings joy to the person writing to them because he wants them to be bonded together through Christ, through his his ministry to them, and then united in this. Um, This is not about using their relationships 
to advance themselves or place themselves in higher positions. Remember, if you know the first century in Roman culture, highly, highly stratified. Australians have a very flat kind of, uh, at least that's the way we express it really, a bit probably tall poppy-ish sometimes. You could show more respect and trust in our leaders. Um, however, Roman culture was completely different to that where everything you did depended on the person who was your patron or who was above you. And advancement came not just from what you did, but certainly who you knew and whether they preferenced you in social and other settings. So this is very countercultural, this thing about being like-minded and being very level in the way they related together. Then the purpose for writing becomes very clear. He says to them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So don't be ambitious. In fact, selfish ambition put together, there's good ambition, I guess, but I think he's pointing to the fact that often ambition is self-centred. He'd rather we be, and the Bible would call us to be, and Jesus would call us to be rather um, ambitious for others. Because you read on to say, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Just hear that again. Value others above yourselves. Straight away I hear CPX doing something on where you should value others above yourselves rather than preference yourself. That's countercultural, I reckon, to us. Looking not, to your, looking, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, putting other people first. So if we're following Jesus, if we're thinking about being a follower of Jesus, there's a radical reordering of our thinking. Instead of putting ourselves first, we value others above ourselves. And all sorts of questions follow, I reckon. You go, well, if we put people above ourselves, wouldn't they take advantage of us? Or couldn't they take advantage of us? Would they abuse that uh, way we operate with them or relate to them? Surely I should be concerned about myself. Don't I need to love myself first before I learn to love others? This sounds like a pathway to exploitation or being treated unfairly. And you know what? Maybe it is, actually. Maybe that's one of the values of the kingdom of God on this earth. Maybe it is what Jesus modelled and taught us. Maybe fairness and rights aren't the first questions that Christians should be asking. Rather than service and sacrifice and self-denial. The Gospels are full of the example and teaching of Jesus on this. How Jesus treated children, how he treated lepers and the sick, how he treated social outcasts, like if you know your Bible a bit, the woman who had a flow of blood was ostracised by her society. He heals her, calls her to himself, places his hand on her, which is remarkable. How he treated women, how he treated all those groups went against the expectations of the age. Uh, particularly even how he treated his disciples, those who followed him, his disciples expected him to treat them like other um, people who were the great gurus, the leaders, the teachers, treated their disciples. How Jesus treated them shocked them at points. I'll talk about that more in a minute. Now, as I've suggested, this is quite countercultural to us. Western society is fiercely independent and individualistic, where our rights are fundamental to how we think. 
this sense of primacy as individuals, primacy of our own selves, or autonomy, is certainly more true of us than our parents or maybe our grandparents. Think about how often you hear the phrase, my rights, in either a news report uh, with someone talking or in conversation amongst work or amongst friends. I'll chat to you later, Wayne. G'day, mate. How you doing? I'll chat to you after my sermon, okay, at the end of church. <laughs> Good on you, mate. So humility would not normally be prized or, ex- or um, I think, um, expressed as a prized workplace characteristic, I think, in training. Imagine a leadership training course saying the first thing you need to do is to be humble. It's not where you start. There might be something about treating your people under you well, both you'll get more out of them and there's good relationships there. Um, but when you have a line manager who is indeed humble, who works collaboratively, who isn't trying to take your successes as their own, it's actually attractive to work for those people, isn't it? They're the people you want to work for um, who aren't so insecure that they have to take your successes as their own. Then we come to the passage that speaks of the humility of Jesus who becomes a servant. These verses are going to be a bit hard to... I did cram in a little bit, I apologise. In your relationships with one another, just leave it there. It's just in the wrong place. Don't move. (laughs) It's funny, really. Um, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, who, who being equal with God, who being not just like God but was God, who had all the power that God had and has, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. God has, Jesus has, unlimited power. What does he do though? Rather, so in contrast to that normal way of operating, using power for his own benefit, for his own advantage, it says this, by taking the very nature of a servant, and in that culture servant meant slave, servant meant being pushed around, servant meant being the lowest of the low, servant meant that you weren't given options about what you did or wouldn't do, There were no unions, no rights. You couldn't, as a servant, say, I think I want to do... No, you couldn't even use that phrase. You were told what to do and you did it or you get punished. Servants weren't just employed workers. They were just a slight rung above slaves, but sometimes only just. Being the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus, who despite the glories of heaven being his by right, did not appeal to ego to hold on to them. Jesus chose giving, not getting. I imagine this conversation with the angels before Jesus comes down to earth and they say to him, now Jesus, respectfully, can we have a chat to you about these humans we hear you're going to visit? We spent some time among them and... You do know, don't you, that they're often by default selfish and self-centred, cruel and egocentric. 
And they certainly don't take well to being told what to do. We're not convinced they'll treat you with the respect that you deserve as the Lord, as the Lord of all. In fact, it'll probably be the exact opposite. But despite the warning, he goes anyway. Those verses speak of what Christ does. Um, It's often called the descent of Jesus. And the picture is, even in the way this is structured as a bit of literature, is here's Jesus in heaven, becomes a servant, becomes a human being. So that's, you might not think this, but it's a step down for Jesus, a big step down for Jesus from being uh, the very form of God, being equal to God, becoming a human being and self-limiting himself by doing so. Then he actually... Um, humbles himself by being obedient to death. He does what God asks him to do and offers himself to death, but not just a normal death, not a death of old age or through some other thing, but a death on a cross. That's even further down. Crucifixion was not just a convenient way of execution. It was designed to be the worst form of humiliation and degradation that human beings could, could imagine. Someone has written, no other form of death, no matter how prolonged or physically uh, agonising could match crucifixion as an absolute destruction of a person. And the thing is that Jesus knows this is what's going to happen to him. And as the Son of God, as the Son of God equal to God, his sacrifice is so much more immense from the heights of heaven to the depths of a crucifixion death. This should both amaze, delight and encourage us because he does it for us. Eventually unjustly executed, but he dies on the cross so that we might have life. This isn't a senseless death. This is one where he goes and makes a sacrifice for us so that we can have a relationship with him and not bear the burden of carrying our own wrongdoing in relationship to God. It couldn't be any further driven, further from the ego-driven attitude of influencers, politicians, sports stars, despots, or business or even union leaders. There's much theology in this, but actually in the end, it's supposed to be about the example of Jesus for us. Imitating him is what we are called to do if we follow him. We are to be like Jesus in this. I don't think that's easy at all. Um, I don't think that's easy at all. But a cursory reading of the Gospels will find multiple examples of Jesus acting in this way. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's about to, where well, he is being arrested, and um, Peter pulls out a sword, chops off, you know, goes for the like, okay, the time to fight is now. Jesus says, put it away. Don't you think I can call legions of angels to come to my defence? I have this power; I could exercise it, but I'll choose not to. That's better than even having not having exercise and being having to be humble because you have to. I want you to, av- to imagine the average fisherman's foot. Stinky, calloused, rough, dirty. You know, I don't know, spattered with fish guts and maybe the occasional cuts from fish hooks or from the cuts of nets and things. Not the prettiest of images. At the Last Supper, when Jesus is there uh, spending time with his disciples, you know it's his last night before he dies, he takes their feet and he washes them one by one. They are horrified. 
Only the lowest of the servants or the slaves was given the job of washing someone's foot, the lowest, okay, the bottom of the rung. You knew it was like you know, being the toilet cleaner. You were the worst, lowest person, got the worst job, which was as people arrived, you'll be told, you're washing feet today. People really thought it was disgusting. Some cases, people had to wash their own feet because they said it's beneath anybody, even a slave. But still, the worst of the worst slave or servant was told to wash the visitor's feet. Jesus washes their feet. This is the disciples saying, hang on, this is the wrong way around. How can you do this? This is just wrong. It just turns everything upside down. And Jesus says to them, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Also a gross idea. I can wash my own. Don't you wash mine? Washing my mates? Not sure about that. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done for you. So Jesus does um, do this in his uh, earthly life. He also does it in his death for us. He says, The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I was, um, when I was involved as a chaplain in a school a number of years ago, uh, I was taking the year 12s through some discussion about leadership. And I referred to this verse and the death of Jesus and his sacrifice for us and that we should put others before ourselves and consider them better than ourselves, this verse in Philippians. And one of the year 12 students just shaking his head. And I said, what's, uh, do you want to say something? Because a conversation, do you want to say something? He goes, look, he says, um, I'm an athlete, right? He said, I'm in athletics and I run and I've been trained to think of myself as better than everybody else that I'm competing with. He said, it's on that basis that I win races. It's not, not that I uh, think I might be better. No, no, that I do think psychologically that I am better and it's the only way I can win. And you're telling me, you're telling me that I've got to change that and think people are better than me. It doesn't work. I was like, wow, that's quite the, like it was such an open, honest, and it makes sense too about, you know, the way you compete and think I can win this, not just I can win this, but I am better than other people. That's what motivated him. And he said, you're messing up my success story. This is wrong. The reality is that Jesus doesn't stay where he is at the death on the cross. There's this, next is the ascent of Jesus where it says, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name as above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is then, in a sense, brought back to where he came from as the Lord of all. In his act of humility, he is, in a sense, restored, not, not of some reward for what he's done, but to be restored to his rightful place. And I might add that, dare I say, there's a little not just a little hint, a strong hint in this, that if we aren't prepared to be humble and even be humble before the Lord, there will be a point where we will be humbled, actually. So I'd encourage you to think about when you face Jesus on the end of, the end of your life or when he returns, what will your position be? Will it be that you humbled yourself, that you sought to serve others, that you wanted to honour him? Because in the end, all of us will stand before him and acknowledge who he is to the glory of God the Father. 
The question from this passage is, if Jesus can do it, can you do it, I reckon? I don't think God gives us impossible tasks to do. It's not like we can't do this. Um, sure, perfectly, we'll have ego and times where we have to think about how we exercised our authority or our power wrongly and reflect on that. And whatever area you're in, whether it's in your personal relationships, in your workplaces, in other contexts you find yourself, it's worth, as a, if you are a follower of Jesus, thinking, how can I be like Christ today? How can I turn the other cheek? How can, how can I go against my desire to be not just in charge, but make sure people know I'm in charge or know I have control over them? How can I exercise my authority appropriately with the boundaries that Christ sets for me while I still love and serve others, even while I have a leadership role or an influence role to follow the example of the, world, the Jesus whom I follow? Jesus' example of self-sacrifice of, um, rather than self-interest is a great leveller. If Christ can lower himself to become a human being and put me first, put you first, I want to call upon the Holy Spirit to humble me too, to change my outlook and genuinely seek to serve others, to not let ego be the reason why I'm up here preaching or teaching or leading or whatever I'm doing. I'd encourage you both as a church, I might say, I reckon Barney's is good at this, like, sure, don't get big heads. Uh, but you are good at loving and caring for each other and seeking to reach the community around you with the love of Christ, like the Magdalene Centre, other things that you do. That's genuine. And is, there I use the language, part of your DNA. One of the things I think was just lovely being part of this church for a number of months, seeing that. Uh, and I, I think that's a great gift that God has given you and, and it, imitating Christ in that way. So thank you for doing that, and I keep on encouraging you to doing that. But then also in your other parts of your lives, not just church life, Maybe there are other challenges for you as well. Or if you're visiting today, maybe there's a challenge for you to think about how you might act with humility uh, and not with exercise of power like Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we are amazed that you who had unlimited power gave up your power for us. That you, the Lord of glory, became a human being, lowered yourself to that and then lowered yourself to die and even more to die the death of crucifixion. We know, Lord, that wasn't the end of your story, but your resurrection and ascension tells us that you are indeed the one to whom both we, can, we have to give an account, but also, Lord, the one we pray we would follow. That if you've served others, how can we not? That you've given your life in sacrifice to those in need, how can we not? Lord Jesus, help us to be more like you we pray in your name. Amen.